You know, I've given my testimony probably dozens of times. And I've got such a sense of the Holy Spirit this morning, I'm probably going to burst into tears. It's, uh, yeah, just, um, I love a baptism. I got baptised myself in 2008, the day before my 40th birthday on Easter Sunday. And it really was the highlight of my life. It was the turning point of putting so much rubbish to bed and getting a fresh start. So, where's the lady? Oh, oh good on you anyway. So, <laughs> I was just going to say, go for it, but... She's gone for it. Um, she didn't leg it, has she? <laughs> I'm not coming back. Um, yeah, so, yeah, my name's Steve, Steve Burnett. I grew up in Hildenborough, so not so very far from you guys. Um, I even had a girlfriend in Edenbridge once when I was about 12. I kind of wonder. Maybe she's here. I can't remember her name. But I used to come over on the train and walk down to her house. I don't think her parents liked me, but it didn't last long. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Hildenborough. Um, I was the oldest of three children, uh, and uh, my childhood was probably much like many other people's childhoods in the early 70s, you know. Uh, Dad worked hard seven days a week, never seemed to be there. Mum uh, was run ragged by three kids. She wanted a girl. Um, I was going to be called Heather. She got me, um, and then... 23 months later, she had my sister, who she named Helen, um, and, and she got the little girl she wanted. And I kind of, I think I, I, I kind of got in trouble from then on, really. Um, I, I just, I think I've now learned that I probably got attention by being naughty, but it was the wrong kind of attention. Um, and so I was a bit of a troubled child and was always in trouble. There was always somebody else's parent banging on our door, threatening to take me to the police for what I'd done to their son or, you know, for popping their daughter's space hopper or things like that. So I was always in trouble and uh, I kind of grew up rebelling. Um, I started smoking cigarettes at the age of 11 and uh, kind of, I still remember that first cigarette and passing out in the hedge in the alleyway. Um, and I kind of, I suppose that was my first experience of kind of, woo, you know, um, the age of 14 was an interesting year. So I used to go to the Baptist church, to Boys Brigade, and there was a minister there um, who uh, led a, like a youth uh, youth activity week. And um, they uh, they took over a little shop, a derelict shop in the high street, and uh, ran a radio show from there. Uh, and on the last evening, they made a sort of baptism, not a baptism call, a commitment call, uh, an altar call, they call it, don't they? And I went up the front and I prayed the prayer and, and became a Christian and nothing else changed. I mean, in the same year, I lost my virginity um, with a young lady against the, the wall of Tunbridge Castle. Um, my favourite granddad died. I punched a guy so hard I knocked him out cold and put him in hospital for three days and thought I'd killed him. Uh, and I sniffed glue for the first time. So it was a bit of a busy year. Um, but my point there is that becoming a Christian to me wasn't really anything other than something I did there and then in that moment it never touched my heart, it never changed my life and I had no concept of God uh, other, other than, I mean I'd always grown up believing in God because my nan believed in God and I love my nan so um, but I didn't really have any concept of relationship or how, what that meant to how you live or 
to who you trust and, and you know, what you do. Um, and I kind of bumbled along through school, left at 16, got a job, you know, and everything changed one night in 1987 for me. Um, I uh, was a passenger in a friend's car and we'd been out playing pool and I'd thrashed him and we got back in the car and he said, you might beat me at pool, but you'll never beat me at driving. And sadly, my sister said, oh, can I come back in his car? Because it was a posh, fancy Opal Manta GTE with a big fin on the back and all rally decals and stuff. And he drove like a rally driver. Unfortunately, he took a bend a little bit too fast at 110 miles an hour coming through Hildenborough. And on a wet, slippery road, he had four ball tyres and uh, he lost control of the car and it spun out of control and went up a big grass bank and flipped over three times and landed on its roof on a on the corner of someone's brick wall opposite the Oast Theatre in Hildenborough. Um, I came round with a policeman doing a camel pinch on my arm, saying, yes, he's alive. And I said, of course I'm alive. He said, well, you weren't just now. I was like, oh. And I kind of became aware of the fact that my friend's head was stuffed in my face and that my leg was hurting and my shoulder was hurting, my head was hurting and everything was hurting and I, it was all sort of metal and brick and crushed car around me. Um, my friend had died. He didn't have his seatbelt on and he was thrown from the driver's seat on top of me and uh, he took the impact that I would have taken as the car landed on the wall and he was killed instantly. His head was crushed onto mine and... Uh, they tell me afterwards that I, I died and was resuscitated, so I don't remember that bit. Uh, I just remember getting resuscitated with this horrible camel pinch. But I spent four and a half hours trapped underneath my friend's body that night while they uh, cut out my sister, who was in the back without a seatbelt. She was thrown out of the rear view window, out of the rear window, and uh, she broke her pelvis in 18 places, fractured her coccyx, her spine, her femur broke two ribs, punctured her lung, broke her collarbone and spent three months in intensive care. She had two blood transfusions while she was hanging upside down from the back of the car. What made it worse for our family was my dad was coming the other way moments after the accident and was the first person on the scene of the accident. And he didn't realise it was us. We were so badly trashed and there was so much blood He'd never seen the car. He'd seen my friend's car, and it was upside down. So he went home very upset that he'd seen this horrible crash where two boys had died, and there was another girl, my girlfriend, in the back, broke her leg and a couple of fingers. Um, and uh, he was very upset. The police had sent him home, thanked him for his service. And, and then my cousin was at home saying, well, Stephen was ahead of us in the car with his mate. And my dad kind of went, ah, and went back up to the accident. Um, so that, was, that had a massive impact on me and my family. And I was 19. I had no idea how to deal with such an event. I'd, my, you know, who does? These things come at you out of the blue. It was like a, being hit in the head with a baseball bat. And it just changed everything. I, I, did, I used to race my car up to my friend's grave in Longfield and sit there all night at his grave crying, sitting in the cold... Just, and I would be daring God to kill me. I felt so guilty that I had lived and he had died because the police had told me if he'd had his seatbelt on, it would have been the other way around. 
And I just dared God at every opportunity. I overtook on blind bends on the brows of hills. I did everything I possibly could to get God to kill me. And he never did. And I left home at 21, still all over the place. And uh, I, I, I had some friends that smoked cannabis. And I started smoking cannabis and then started taking speed and then cocaine and LSD and ecstasy. And, and I suppose over the next few years, I found that using drugs stopped me hurting. It was an escape. I didn't realize that consciously, as in, oh, if I do this, I get that. But I think that's what I liked about them. And I had a few other unfortunate events. Um, I have trouble remembering in which order these things happen. But my favorite cousin hung himself. Uh, the one that I looked up to because he was successful and um, was, a, was a salesman and had a Mercedes that he let me drive. And he came home one day and went up in his loft and hung himself. And I'm, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you talk to me, to someone, to anybody? I just, and again, I felt guilty. I'd, I felt I should have been able to do something to help him. I should have seen it. I should have noticed. I should have asked him. But there wasn't any signs. I'd, it came out of the blue. And my other cousin got killed on his motorbike, came home from work one day, went for a drive and had a head-on collision with a shogun. Um, and a friend of mine, a beautiful girl, uh, I was friends with her, her dad and mum, and there was four daughters and one son. And uh, one of the daughters was with me and a group of friends at my house. We were going to ring one of the others and find out what she wanted to do tonight. She had two little kids, like a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and an ex-partner. Um, and uh, she, he'd, 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 uh, he'd been unpleasant to her. He'd punched her a few times and knocked her about, and she left him. Uh, and we rang, and one of her other sisters answered the phone and said, Darren's just stabbed Avril and he's trying to kill me. And she screamed and ran off kind of thing. And we were only a few minutes away. We shot round there and got round there in time for the police to be pumping Avril on the floor. And they had Darren held down. And uh, because a friend of mine was an anaesthetist who was with me and worked at the A&E in Tunbridge Wells, we followed the ambulance over and they let him and I in as they were working on her trying to save her life, which they weren't able to do. And uh, one of my most heartbreaking memories is Avril laying on the operating table or whatever it is where they work on you with her arm out and they just, as they all walked away. And I just never knew how to deal with any of these feelings and I just took more and more drugs and got a bigger and worse addiction. And then I tried to run and hide. I thought if I changed where I am and what I'm doing, Maybe I'll be able to get away and leave my problems behind me. And I decided to go backpacking around the world. I, I booked a ticket to India and landed there one Wednesday morning in Delhi at 5 a.m. Goodness me, what a bump that was. That's a crazy place. And uh, But you can't hide from your problems, can you? You think, I'll go and get a fresh start, and all you do is go and find loads of new places and people to feed your habit with and new things and opium and, and crystal meth and yeah so that didn't work out well anyway but I found myself in Australia in 1998 and uh, was it no, 97 
and I was working on a tomato farm, picking tomatoes, when I got a phone call in at silly o'clock in the morning, and a very grumpy farmer's wife telling me, why did you give your mum the number and why is she ringing at 3am? Well, she was ringing because my brother had just been killed in a car crash, driving to Edenbridge, actually. He was working at an injection and moulding firm here, and he'd had a head-on collision with a coach coming the other way. And uh, I flew home from... Uh, from I was in, I flew out of Brisbane um, and got home in time for his funeral. Uh, and again, I just didn't know how to deal with this pain. My pain was just... I mean, it hurts now, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm in a better point of life, but I've got a lot more emotional intelligence now and a better understanding, but these things hurt. Life hurts. There's probably nobody in the room who, who it doesn't ring a bell with, you know? Stuff hurts. And I just kept feeding my addictions, and I got really heavily addicted to crack cocaine. I was spending copious amounts of money, smoking it three nights a week, and I was an absolute wreck. I was 10 stone at one point. I mean, I'm a 16-stone man standing here today. So 10 stone is, you know, I wasn't designed to be a 10-stone man, I don't think. And uh, I... Um, I was, I'd been at a, the place where I used to score from and use, and I got, I got so bad I was you know, twitching and shaking and sweating and, and in such a bad way routinely that these guys wouldn't let me do it in front of them. I used to have to go into another room and smoke it on my own because they all thought I was going to die. And I'd been there, I, was, I went there on a Friday night and I'd been there to Sunday night. And on the Sunday night as I lay on the floor in this, this empty bedroom and I'd finished what I had to smoke and... I'd been smoking it for three days and I lay there and I literally felt my heart stop beating. You can feel your heart palpitating when you're using that amount of cocaine. It's going bang, bang, bang. It's skipping all over the place and I felt it stop. And my vision faded out and went down a tunnel and in that moment I cried out to God and I said, Look, Lord, help. If you're there and you save me, I'll honour you all my days. And I had a vision of my own funeral in St. John's Church in Hildenborough. I was right there, sitting in the front row, and there's my coffin, and there was my wife and children, and my eldest son kicked my coffin, and he swore at me. And Dad, he was so mad at me for dying. And I, I woke up. I didn't die. I crawled home. I went to bed. That was a Sunday night. I used, I used again on Tuesday. But something changed. And in, in the following weeks and months, something had I'm not even sure that it changed in me, but a, a, a lady I knew at work, her husband was a Royal Marine Commando PTI, physical training instructor. He started coming round Saturday mornings and, and Sunday mornings and dragging me out of bed and making me do press-ups and things when I'm laying there twitching and shaking from only having been in bed for 20 minutes and I've got this lunatic who you can't argue with <laughs> taking me down the garden and making me do press-ups and throw up and stuff like that. And my wife found a counsellor. She, she wanted to do some marriage guidance counselling because our marriage was in such disarray. She had a completely absent husband who was in, completely in love with another woman called Crack Cocaine and didn't pay any attention to her or the kids. I would have stacked my children up and climbed up them to reach my crack pipe off the top shelf. No question. I would go to her family at Christmas and cause a massive argument deliberately so that I could storm out and go home and get a few days on my own to get trashed. I was an absolute 
house and treated her very badly, which is probably why she's now my ex-wife. Um, and uh, I didn't do great by my kids at all. But in, in 2005, she introduced me to a counsellor. The counsellor, unbeknown to her or I, was a Christian lady. And she, um, she spotted straight away, Steve, we can't even do any marriage guidance counselling. We've got to get you from, to stop you from dying because you're about to die. It's that close. And over the course of two years, she took me through something called the 12 Steps, which has been long used by AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the Anonymous Fellowships. It was originally written as a Christ-based recovery. And Alcoholics Anonymous has a little bit watered it down to be in the, the, the God of your choosing or the power of your choosing or whatever, and not quite brought it into the Christian thing. But I, I sat in a a one-to-one -one environment with this lady and over two years we did the 12 steps program and I think of it as recovering from life without God on your own to recovering to life with God and I'm in recovery I'm recovering from life on my own and I'm now recovering and trying to do life with God I know I'm trying not to be God of my own life I'm trying to let him be God of my life so that when it goes wrong and it does instead of turning to something that makes me forget and stop hurting, I can turn to God and say, I hurt. And there's been plenty of occasions since. They're still coming. You don't get a golden ticket, that's for sure. But um, the last time I used was January the 27th, 2007. I bought a half ounce of cocaine. I washed it up and smoked it and got absolutely trashed. That was probably six weeks after I'd used previously. I'd gradually, over that two years, from 2005 to 2007, I got the gaps bigger, and with a lot of help, a lot of encouragement, with some friends that gave me a safe place to go any night I wanted, any time I could go to their house, with um, some other counselling, like I say, with, with that, doing the 12 steps, and, and I think with God. I didn't entirely recognise God, you know, the counsellor did ask me if Jesus was sitting in that chair in this room, what would you say to him? I can't remember what I answered, but I shouldn't think it was very intelligent. I shouldn't think it was very deep or meaningful. I really struggled. But after I got clean, so we're in sort of 2007, heading into 2008, I started feeling like I'd missed something important. You know that feeling when you get to, did I lock the front door? Have I left the gas on? Or if you're driving and the policeman driving along behind you, are the blue lights going to come on? Did I just jump those lights? Have I been speeding? That sort of, you know, you know something's wrong, but you can't put your finger on it. And I just kept feeling like something was wrong. So in the end, I decided I needed to go and see a vicar. Strange thing. So I found the vicar that had married my wife and I and buried my brother. And I went and saw him and I told him what had happened and what mess I was in and, and where I was at. And he said, if you want to uh, find out what's going on, Steve, he said, I think you need to go to church, say your prayers and read your Bible. And I was like, shut up. I'm not that sort of person. You haven't listened to anything I've said. And he said, well, maybe you should go to a home group. I'm like, what's a home group? He said, well, it's like church, but much smaller and without all the people. There may be five or six people meeting in a home and you probably get something to eat and then they'll just look at a little bit of the Bible. And I was like, a bunch of hairy toads sound of wearing Christians I'm not doing that and uh, 
after a few weeks, I did that. I went and knocked on the door of the house, he told me, and they were lovely. They were like really normal and really... <laughs> they weren't weird at all. <laughs> they were really pleased to see me and they've become amazing friends. And they were reading 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, verse 19 just leapt off the page at me. And I, I paraphrase it because I'm never very good. And there's so many different versions of the Bible. It doesn't matter what you say as long as you get the gist of it. Isn't there? So it said, the Lord's truth stands like an inscription. He knows those who are his and all who follow him must turn away from evil. And I thought, an inscription. I kind of had this picture of it being chiseled out in the rock face of a cliff, you know? Not like some flimsy bit of paper or a contract. Not even a handshake. You know, this is, this is God chiseling out truth in, in, the, in the, the Dover cliffs, white cliffs of Dover or something, you know? He knows those who are his. I thought, well, that's, maybe that's why I've got, I feel like his finger's on me, you know? If I'm his, and then you've got to turn away from evil. I thought, right, well, that's it. I've got to give up. I need to become Steve the Christian and stop being Steve the Dodger, Steve the drug dealer, Steve the philanderer, Steve the plonker, shall we say. And I kind of, I was convicted there and then. And I decided that was it. I was going to leave that life behind and repent, turn to a new life and direction. And I've been trying to stay in that direction ever since. And like I say, that led to me getting baptised in 2008. Uh, amen. And um, after I got baptised, an uncle of mine who was a 43-year recovered alcoholic, um, he took me to an organisation called Overcomers Outreach, which is very big in the States. They have lots of chapters and they run Christ-based recovery and ongoing weekly meetings and stuff. But it was the 12 steps, but supercharged by Bible verses and Christianity and faith. And I thought, wow, this is great. We should run this at our church. So I started praying for it, and I spoke to the minister. And he very wisely said, Steve, you've only just got here. Calm down. If God's got something that he wants to do with you, just pray and trust and be patient. And I prayed and trusted and be patient. And then I kind of forgot to pray and what most of us do, you know. Someone says you're going to have to pray for something for 10 years. How many of us would do it, you know? But here we are 10 years later and about, uh, we've just finished running our seventh recovery course at the church, the Baptist church in Tunbridge. Um, I'm a trustee for the charity that promotes the running of that course and uh, I'm involved with Kev here, who's uh, trying not to distract me by taking pictures. And uh, he, we've got courses running. There are courses. We don't have courses. We encourage the running of courses at other churches. We don't own them. We encourage them. We support them. We will give materials and such like to the, to the running of it. Um, and they are running all over the place. Kev, how many recovery courses are there running off the top of your head? hundred or so. A hundred or so. Some in Australia some in South Africa, some in America, some in prisons. You know, this thing, God is going viral with the recovery course. And let me just tell you one quick story about a guy who came through the doors on our first recovery course. He's called Big Steve. I'm Little Steve. He's Big Steve. And he's like six foot seven Steve, okay? He's a massive guy. I've got big hands. It's like a child shaking hands with Big Steve. He's huge. And he came in one night 
And it was... I was in turmoil, and he's a giant, and everybody in this going, this guy looks a bit scary, is he going to kill us all? You know, he was in anguish, you could see every bit shaking, tears running down his face, a poor guy, and a couple of us kind of shepherded him out of the main room where everybody was, and took him away and prayed with him, and he, he didn't share what was wrong we don't necessarily ask straight away but we he came back and he came back and he was in one of my groups and big steve's story in a in a in a nutshell he had been married he'd had two children his wife had been unfaithful she'd left him for another man she'd taken the children with him and moved a couple of hours away he'd met another young lady down in devon fallen in love had a baby and she'd slept on the baby one night and it had died and Big Steve had started doing everything he could to kill himself not actually go and do it yet but drinking litres of vodka in the outside lane of the M25 just he was in so much pain and we started telling him that Jesus loved him that there was no condemnation that there was freedom from pain there was hope there is a chance at having a normal life at balancing that pain with hope and a future and that Jesus loved him that God loved him that we loved him and Big Steve just couldn't hear it Big Steve was hurting so badly that Big Steve got in his car one day and he took his car took in his car a length of hose pipe and he drove to the car park uh, at the top of the A3, there's a country park there with a little stand that sells coffees and sandwiches in. And he went and parked in the car park there. And he, he parked his car, left the engine running, he opened the door. And he was about to get out, and this is a happy ending, because he was about to get out and put the hose pipe into his exhaust and run it through the window and end his pain. And he looked down on the ground, just glanced at the ground, as he, 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 something glinted and caught his eye. And there, tucked under the gravel, just a little bit showing, as he swept it back, was a crucifix. Someone had dropped their cross. I love Big Steve. He's my friend. Don't make me cry. <laughs> Am I making you cry? I don't know. But, and Big Steve picked up the cross. And he thought, maybe, that maybe they're telling the truth. And Big Steve still wonders, maybe, are we telling the truth? But Big Steve is still fighting. And Big Steve's a good man. And Big Steve is a much happier man. And Big Steve acknowledges God. He still has so many questions and challenges and so many things we debate on Facebook. And, but Big Steve believes that God exists. And Big Steve believes that God has love for him and love for the world and a hope and a future. And Big Steve didn't kill himself that day. And that's what we want for as many people as possible. I spent so many years with Satan's foot on my neck. And God took it off. And God gave me hope. And God's given hope to many of you others in here. And I cannot encourage you enough to come and do the recovery course. Because it's not just recovering from food addiction, from alcohol, from drugs, from pornography, from whatever it is that you may be using to numb your pain to avoid your pain 
it is recovery from life and everything that life does to you to life with Jesus and I'm, I'm sure as I look around this room many of you are on that journey we're all on that journey different places down the road but the recovery course has been formative the 12 steps program was formative for me I didn't do it in the recovery course but I've done it in that way and I've been involved right from the start so I can't encourage you guys enough think prayerfully would it help you is there someone in your family um, yeah one of your neighbours I don't know I'm sure Mel's going to talk to you more about it as the weeks progress but I can't wait to come back like I said at the beginning the Holy Spirit's here he's in the business of changing lives and and I hope and pray that you know we'll perhaps be celebrating at the end of the recovery course another service and instead of me stood up here giving testimonies we'll be handing the microphones to many of you and you'll be saying what's happened to you in your lives on this course and to those that you love so I think, have I done my 25 minutes, Mel? Did I run over? Am I about right? I'm going to give you the microphone back and say thank you.